Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back. I do feel like I'm in a strange place. A lot of faces I don't recognize, and apparently you've changed the name back to Melling Park Baptist Church. Oh, <laughs> uh, I knew it had been a long time. I didn't know it had been that long. Wow. If it's okay with you, I did want to take some time before we begin a new series looking at the life of Moses, just sharing with you some of what I was able to take away from the sabbatical this year. Um, And I'm supposed to turn this on, so let me go ahead and do that. Most importantly, let me begin with this. Thank you. Uh, What you have given to me and my family is a gift that we will cherish for a lifetime. One of the things that I didn't realize at first, but came to understand about two weeks in, was the fact that what we experience together as a family will likely never, ever, ever happen again. Because, Lord willing, in seven years, should I have another sabbatical, our life looks dramatically different. Graham is well into college. Grant has graduated from high school. We have an empty nest. And the likelihood of us spending eight, nine weeks together where everything we do with rare exception is done together as a family will be a memory. But it's been a great memory, so thank you for that. Let me take some time, if I could, just to share some of the highlights of that. We began celebrating my parents' 50th wedding anniversary in La Vida, Texas. So this is me and my family, my brother and his kids, Don and my mom and dad, and we just had an incredible time. You can see my parents toasting on their 50th, and we had some time in the mountains, which uh, is my favorite place to be, so I really enjoyed great time there. I also ask you to pray for some adventure, that I would do things that are outside of the box a little bit. Well, this is one of those things. This is called the incline. It's in Colorado Springs. We were actually doing a hike with a friend of mine, Greg Storm. We spent some time there with uh, Greg and his family. He was a college roommate best man in my wedding, uh, just special, special friends. And we were at what's, what they call Pulpit Rock. We were doing a hike, and he said, hey, sometime while y'all are here, we ought to do this thing called the incline. He says, crazy people do this stuff. It's a mile-long staircase, but it'd be fun. Well, Graham happened to be nearby overhearing this conversation, and he was like, let's do it. I'm like, I don't know, Graham. He goes, Greg said, well, we need to do it in the morning if we're going to do it. So the next morning, we were up doing the incline. Grant Graham ran up that thing like a gazelle in just over 30 minutes. I plotted up like a water buffalo in just over an hour. But it definitely was an adventure. So those are some of the things that we did. But really the biggest takeaway uh, among many was just the connection with family and what a gift that was to have that time together. So thank you for that. Um, Another benefit of the sabbatical, though, that I want to share with you. Oh, I forgot to share that one. Uh, One of the privileges that we had was the McAlpines gave us a chance to go to Glen Erie, which is the headquarters for the navigators in Colorado Springs, did a tour of the castle there and spent some time on the ground. So this is a picture of of our time there. That was a sweet treat as as well. But one of the other uh, takeaways from the sabbatical was this idea of learning to live in the moment. Uh, I have a good friend, Kyle Kegler, who is on staff at Watermark in Dallas, and I actually spent some time with Dusty over here at Redeemer before my sabbatical started. And in different ways, they both kind of encouraged me towards the same thing. They said, hey, Todd, make sure that when you're on your sabbatical, you live in the moment. Well, that was a big deal for me because I'm the kind of person who has trouble with that. I 
spend a lot of my time kind of preparing for the next thing to the point that sometimes I miss out on right here, right now. And so it was good for me to hear that. And then I had an experience on my sabbatical that really drove that home. Uh, There's a guy by the name of Peter Stitcher. I've never met this guy in person, um, and, uh, or at, at the time had never met him. He was somebody I ran across when we were preparing for a backpacking trip. I was trying to get some flies to go fly fishing and ended up talking to this guy. He had been to Western Seminary, then went back to school to become a biologist and was starting this new business. And anyway, we just hit it off and talked periodically through the years. Well, just randomly, because when you're on sabbatical, you're supposed to do stuff out of the box. I called him and I said, hey, any chance you might want to go fishing together? He says, yeah, let's do it. And I was... A little bit shocked with that, but I thought, this will be fun. So I met him in Leadville, Colorado, beautiful place, and we went to the Arkansas River. We walked up to the river, and before he ever did anything, he says, let me show you a few things before we get started. He walks up to the river and takes a rock out of the river, turns it over, and says, tell me what you see. I'm like, a rock. <laughs> and he goes, no, just watch and, and look and tell me what you see. I bet we looked at that rock for 30 seconds. But after a while, some things started moving on that rock. And every time something moved, that little insect, he identified what it was. There was this little shell-looking thing, nondescript. I would have totally ignored it. He, he took it off, and he kind of pinched it and pulled out this fluorescent green worm. I mean, I think it could have glowed in the dark. It was amazing. And so he's identifying all these things. And, and then he says, all right, come over here. So we stepped out of the river, and he came to this bush. And he says, tell me what you see. A bush, right? He says, no, just wait and, and watch and see what happens. Well, after time, little insects started flying in and out of this bush. And as they did, he would identify them. He says, okay, you see the ones that are going up and down like they're dancing? He says, those are mayflies. See the ones that are on a mission? They're going from point A to point B? He says, those are stoneflies. And those that are a little bit all over the place like they have ADHD, he says, those are caddisflies. And then we went to the river one more time. He took a real fine net, kind of put it downstream and ruffled some rocks upstream and then pulled the net up and all these insects were inside of it. He says, now that we've taken time to read the river, we know what the fish are eating and, and now we can, we can fish. Well, that experience really set the tone for the, the rest of my sabbatical. Just after that experience with him, I spent three days in uh, the wilderness on my own, solitude. As you might be able to tell, this is my happy place. This is what I love just about more than anything else. And uh, so I was in the wilderness, and what I'd experienced with my new friend Peter was something that really set the tone for my experience there alone in the wilderness because I made myself a commitment <laughs> that I was not going to be worried about the next thing, that I was enjoy the moment that I was in. So one of the things that I did, this is kind of the modern-day version of stopping to smell the roses. I took pictures, and I was just real intentional every step of the way of recognizing the beauty around me. Flowers, rocks, butterflies, trees. It's amazing how much you notice that you would have otherwise walked right by trying to get to the destination instead of enjoying the journey. And so that really was significant for me. And during that time, I was reading a book by uh, uh, an author, Paul David Tripp, called Awe. And I'd saved it for this trip because one of the things that I was prayerful about being in God's creation was just to be in awe of who he is and what he's done. And uh, one of the things that 
this author did is he began one of the chapters with Isaiah 40. Now, I was real intentional not to try to get in a hurry and to go to the next thing and plan things out ahead of time, but I really kind of wanted to go to the pass. It was a 13,000-foot pass, and I was like, I just need to wait. And So I'm reading Isaiah 40, and right in the middle of Isaiah 40, it says literally these exact words, get yourself up to a high mountain. I was like, green light, I'm going. <laughs> so I get in my forerunner, and I drive up this four-wheel drive road, which was really a little bit scary. I was thinking, man, I hope I don't get up because I was the only one out there. I saw no one. I thought, man, if I get stuck, I'm in big trouble. I'm crawling over rocks and get to a place where I can't go anymore because there's snow that's covered the pass. So I park and get up my backpack and, and go up to the top <coughs> of this pass at 13,000 feet. And then I took out uh, Isaiah 40 and I read it out loud. And, and there's passages in Isaiah 40 that I will never read <laughs> the same way says things like this. It says, The valleys will be lifted up. The mountains and hills will be made low. The rough ground will become a smooth plain. The rugged terrain, a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. I'm reading this as I'm looking at all these things that it was describing, the mountains and the, the valleys. It goes on to say, who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who measures the expanse of the heaven by its span? Who calculates the dust of the earth? Who weighs the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? I was in awe. And I said, this is where I want to live in awe of God and who He is and all that He has done. And, and I'll never ex uh, forget that experience because it became so real in the midst of what I was reading. And I really think a lot of it had to do with slowing down long enough to listen and to go where God leads and to trust Him in that. If I could, let me give you one more takeaway, if that's all right. Uh, this one was a big one for me. And it was a reminder from the Lord of who I am in Christ. Uh, one of the things that I've mentioned before, and I don't expect you to fully understand, I didn't until I became one, but it's very lonely and isolating at times as a pastor. Part of it's just part of the job, because you just spend a lot of time alone reading Scripture, studying, preparing a sermon. Part of it, though, is because you have a title that keeps people at a distance. <laughs> the pastor. Well, I didn't really appreciate the significance of that until we'd been out and I began to see some of my personality come out <laughs> in ways that I think had been hidden for a while. Believe it or not, I can be a really fun and adventurous person, all right? <laughs> so that started to come out and, and, and even my family recognized it and I was spending time with people who knew me long before I was a pastor. So it was easy for that to happen. Well, about midway through, I had the privilege of performing a wedding for Matt and Lauren Barber which I was very excited about and had agreed to long before my sabbatical. And uh, Matt and I have a long history together and have grown to love Lauren, so I would have done nothing else but that. I was thrilled to be able to do that. But here's what happened. I'd spent all this time alone with, or with family and friends who knew me as Todd. I went into this wedding environment, and guess what happened? All of a sudden, I became Pastor Todd. 
Pastor, will you uh, pray for our time? Pastor, will you uh, bless the meal? And, and within this environment, there was this safe distance that people would keep from the pastor. I walked out of there. I told Terry, I said, oh, that's not who I want to be. I'm Todd. I'm learning to love Jesus and to follow him just like everybody else is. I am no different than you. I'm a student of Scripture. The only difference is I have the privilege every Sunday to get up here and tell you what I'm learning. And so, <clears throat> about that same time, I get this text from Lisa Huddleston. About midway, thanks for the way you fight to do this. Thanks for waiting on him. I, we don't want you to be like anyone else. Just be taught. I think God was being pretty clear <laughs> about what he was trying to drive home in my heart. So towards the end of my sabbatical, uh, I had the privilege of unknowingly end up leading a backpacking trip. I was initially going along just to kind of go along, but because uh, Bruce had had a back injury, Two days before we were to leave, I was in charge. But one of the things that I did is I told the students a little bit of what I just shared with you and uh, what God was teaching me and learning. Uh, I was learning through this. And so I said, hey, do me a favor. And while we're on this trip together, please don't call me Pastor Todd. Don't call me Mr. Sapisa. Don't call me Mr. Todd. Just call me Todd. These are great kids. I know they have respect for authority and older generations and all that good stuff. But I just wanted to be taught. And I want to tell you something. <laughs> I have a better relationship with those kids than I've ever had in my life. And I know most of them since the day they were born. Because the gap closed. And the distance was gone. And I was just Todd. So, do me a favor. Just call me Todd. I appreciate the respect that you give but I just want to be like you, a student of Scripture, learning what it means to follow God, and just joining together to be the people that God's called us to be. And, and I appreciate the opportunity to do what we did this summer because these are the things that, that God has continued to work in my heart, and I'm grateful for that. So, again, thank you for the privilege. Before we get started, let me open our time in prayer. God, I am grateful, and I want to profess to you in the midst of this church family how thankful I am for the history and time of relationships that are represented here. 30 years is a long time. It's a long time to develop very close, heartfelt relationships, and I consider it a privilege to have been afforded the opportunity to do what we were able to do this summer as a family and to be quiet in your presence in awe of your goodness so that you can speak to my heart in very significant ways. And I pray that all that I learned and gained from that time this summer would be reflected in what I share and how I teach and how I live in the midst of my brothers and sisters in Christ as one of them, a student of Scripture, seeking to learn what it means to faithfully follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, this morning we're going to look at the story of Moses. We're going to begin something that will continue through the fall. And 
before we get started in some of the details, let me give you a big picture real quick. You can really take the life of Moses and divide it up into three sections of about 40 years each, okay? Within each section, there are significant things that are going on. So the first 40 years, which we'll actually walk through this morning, believe it or not, Moses was raised by royalty. And I think probably it's fair to say that within this season of his life, Moses probably thought he was somebody. Because he was within that culture. And we'll learn about that as we go along. The next 40, Moses was shaped in the wilderness. Now, those of us who've ever uh, been backpacking or spent time in the wilderness, you know how humbling that can be. How small you become in the midst of the grandeur of God's creation. So it was during this time that, that Moses was shaped by God and probably realized, not that he was somebody, that he was nobody. And in the next 40 years, it set himself up what had happened previously set himself up to be led by God. And this is the season where, where Moses learned what God can do with nobodies. You see, he wasn't interested in, in people who would uh, come with great gifts. He was there to work through people with great faith. How many of y'all took the challenge of summer and memorized Hebrews 11, 1 through 6, and 12, 1 through 3? All right, me and a couple of other people. Fantastic. Well, you're missing out. Those are some great verses. And one of the things that it says, Hebrews 11:6, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And that's something that Moses had to learn over time. And so do you and I. During our backpacking trip with the students, one of the things that we did is we took time for each person to give their life story, which was significant for me, just to hear these students tell about how God has worked in their life. And one of the things my son said at the beginning of his testimony, his story, he says, before I give you my life story, I need you to know that my story is being written. My testimony is still being told. His point was, I'm in process. And I'm trying to head in the right direction. And I heard that and I thought, isn't that true for all of us? <laughs> We're all in process. Our story is still being written. You see, spiritual maturity is not defined by someone who has the strength to stand on his own. Somebody who's got it all figured out, whose story is done. No, spiritual maturity is someone who understands how desperately they need a Savior. And not just as a one-time event of salvation, although that's part of it, but a daily dependence, surrendering your heart and life as you choose to follow God. And as we will see in the life of Moses, and is true for you and I, God can do great things with people's hearts that are surrendered to Him. People who understand how much they deeply need Him day by day. So if you would, turn to Exodus chapter 1, and let's get started. Exodus chapter 1. Genesis and then Exodus. So in Exodus chapter 1, the author Moses begins to kind of tell his own story about the context into which he was born, the family that he came from. And as you'll be able to see, the story of Joseph is actually very central to the life of Moses. If you will, look at verse 5 in Exodus chapter 1. 
All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. You'll remember, through God's provision, Joseph rescued his family. And not only did he rescue them, but he brought them into the land of Egypt, gave them a place of protection, and it's in that place they lived and prospered. Verse 7 says, Israel was fruitful, increased greatly, and multiplied. They became exceedingly mighty to the point that the land was filled with them. Now, apparently, the, the leaders of Egypt were caught unaware. And the reason I think that was the case is because you'll remember the occupation of the Israelites was they were shepherds. Shepherds were despised by the culturally advanced Egyptians. And so they probably put them in the corner and paid no attention to them. Until one day, a new Pharaoh came on board and says, we've got a problem. Look at what happens in verse 8. Now a new king, a new pharaoh, arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more, more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply in the event of war. They will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So to put this in context, it's been about a hundred years since Joseph died. So during that span, that group of 70 plus Joseph and his family has now multiplied into what really is a small nation. Most scholars estimate that in the time of the Exodus, the nation of Israel had grown to about 2 million people. So they had multiplied and filled the land. This Pharaoh recognizes it and says, wait a second, we've got a problem. Where did all these people come from? <laughs> and so, there's no indication that the Jews were causing any kinds of problems. And I think it's important to, to recognize this. In fact, I think they were probably quite content living in the land of Egypt and prospering. They were probably comfortable where they were, even though they had to know that this was not the land that God had promised. In fact, Joseph, the one who gave them the privilege to be there, before he died, he gave them very clear instructions, and it was this. When I die, take my bones when you go to Canaan and bury them there. The point is, this is not the promised land. We belong in Canaan. And so go and take this with you. We're going to learn how God used the stubborn heart of Pharaoh to awaken the lazy heart of the Israelites. He's going to give them a wake-up call in a sense. Look at verse 11. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them, the Israelites, with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to, to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field. All their labors, which they had 
rigorously imposed upon them. You see, slavery was uh, Pharaoh's initial attempt to turn the problem of the Jews into a solution for the Egyptians. But he underestimated these shepherds. They were no stranger to hard work. (laughs) And so the more they afflicted them, the more they continued to multiply and to fill the land. It's believed that these storage cities in verse 11 were like military outposts. Places where they would uh, probably cache weapons and supplies in the event of a war. So the Pharaoh looked at this and he says, oh, wait a second. I mean, those guys are so mighty in number and size, then if they wanted to, they could take those things and turn against us. But I want you to recognize that all these things that Pharaoh was worried about were scenarios that he was creating in his mind. There was no indication that the Jews were any problem. In fact, I believe they were very content and comfortable in the land of Egypt. But he's a man who is driven by by fear. And a person in power who is driven by fear will stop at nothing to maintain control. You see, Pharaoh is about to come become the, the Hitler of his day. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named uh, Shephira, and the other was named Pua. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then let him live. Let her live. So my first question to you is, why kill all the male babies? I mean, you would think it would be the females, right? Because they're the ones that are going to grow up going to have more kids. Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One of them was, unknowingly, Pharaoh was a tool of the enemy who was attempting to destroy the line of the Messiah. Kill all the male babies. But it was also true that the males were the ones who were going to grow up to be warriors. And Pharaoh was driven by fear. He is afraid of losing power. He wrongly assumes that he is in ultimate Control. In fact, in that culture, the Pharaoh was seen as a god. He was looked upon as an intermediary between this pantheon of gods in heaven and people on earth. And since he ruled with divine power, his actions were unrestrained. He could do what he wanted. But the Israelites had a different belief. And that begins to show itself in verse 17. Look at that. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? Did I not give you instructions? You let the boys live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God. He established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. See, the Jews feared the one true God more than they feared Pharaoh the false God. They understood that only God had the authority to bring forth life, and no man had authority to take that life away. They were unwilling to murder innocent life. 
as Pharaoh had commanded. So they made up what, to me, sounds like a really ridiculous excuse. They basically said, look, Pharaoh, you don't understand. These Hebrew women are like Stephanie Shubiaka. <laughs> when they decide to have a baby, boom, it's here. And that baby's born long before the midwives can get there. So we simply cannot carry out your plan to terminate the pregnancy because it already happens by the time we get there. Well, Pharaoh apparently believed the report. And we learned that God protected the midwives and allowed the people of Israel to continue to multiply and to flourish even in the midst of persecution. But all of this up to this point appears to be a kind of a private plot between Pharaoh and the midwives. And since the midwives were uh, unwilling or unable to do their part, he decided to take things into his own hands. And that private plot turned into a public decree to kill all the male baby, board, baby Hebrew, Hebrew baby boys born in Egypt during this time and to throw them into the Nile and just let them drown. That was the context into which Moses was born. He would be one of those Hebrew babies born who was to be thrown into the Nile. Let's see what happens in chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she said to him for three months. She hid him for three months. Now let me pause here. I'm going to give you a quick homework assignment. They obviously make a point here that Moses was born from the tribe of Levi. Now, at this point in time, the offices in God's economy of his people had not been established. But we know from the history of the Israelites that the tribe of Levi had a significant role among the people of Israel. So go home and study this week and figure out why it would be important to know that Moses was born from the tribe of Levi. Let's continue. But when she hid him no longer, she got him a, a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it uh, and see it among the reeds by the, Nile, by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to, the, to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Now, one of the things that I want you to recognize in the events of this story that is this. God's not opposed to careful planning. If you read carefully what we just looked at, you'll see that apparently within those three months, Moses' mother thought long and hard about a plan that would take place that we see unfolding in these verses. But even in careful planning, I want you to recognize that she still had to relinquish control. 
she still had to trust in God's provision and not her plan. Because her plan was to, to put this baby into, a Nile, into the Nile within a basket that might float, but she still had to let go of the basket. She still had to relinquish control. But she did her best to protect him. It tells us she took that basket and, and covered it in, in tar, and basically what that did is it, it made it able to float. It's interesting that the Hebrew word to describe what was done when you take reeds and cover it in tar, the Hebrew word is ark. Just like in Noah's ark. So Moses, like Noah, was called by God to deliver his people. And we're going to see that unfold in our story. We can see that even a well-thought-out plan comes with trust in God. What we learn from this story is that Moses' sister was a maidservant to Pharaoh's daughter. And so the plan was like this. I'm going to make a basket. I'm going to make it to where it can float. I'm going to put the baby in the Nile, as the Pharaoh said. But the, the basket's going to float so that it goes in the direction of when I know the daughter's going to come out, Pharaoh's daughter's going to come out to bathe. And I also know that my daughter, Miriam is her name, Moses' sister, is going to be there because she's a servant of Pharaoh's daughter. Well, in my mind, it's probably Miriam who recognized, along with Pharaoh's daughter, the basket in the first place. It was likely Miriam who took that basket and brought it to Pharaoh's daughter. And then when Pharaoh's daughter looked at it and said, oh my gosh, what do we do? It was Miriam who said, would you like for me to find someone who would nurse this child? And guess who she chose to do that? Moses' mother. It was all a very elaborate and purposeful plan. She still had to let go of the basket, but her trust was in God's provision. And, and so Miriam, or Moses' mother, is the one who raised her, likely for the first three to five years of his life. That's how the, the child was weaned, was during that time. So she, he grew up essentially being raised in those early years by his own mother. It was in this time that he learned about his Jewish roots. It's how he found out about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is where his faith was established, even though he would later grow up and be raised within the realm of royalty. In fact, you don't need to turn there, but listen to how uh, it is described in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 20. It says this, It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, put in the Nile, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son after this period of being weaned by his mother. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in word and deeds. What it's telling us is that as a son of royalty, he was raised in the finest Egyptian schools. He was mighty in word and deed. He was raised in royalty and destined to be a leader. But probably not the leader he expected to be. God had a different plan. And Moses still had a lot to learn. And I think from God's perspective, so do you and I. As Graham would say, our story is still being written. 
our testimony is still being told. I think sometimes we have a picture in our mind of what we expect life to be, what we think it's going to look like. We make plans, we set goals. That's not a bad thing. You've heard the saying before, aim at nothing and you're guaranteed to hit it every time. So it's okay to make plans and, and to prepare for your future. But even as we make plans, like Moses' mother, we have to understand that what happens in the future is not, a ba- not based on the success of our plans. Instead, we've got to relinquish control. We've got to trust in God who is ultimately in control and in a sense, let go of the basket and trust it to Him. Like the midwives, we've got to learn to fear, fear God because that's the basis in which we faithfully obey God. Now, I know that this idea of fearing God is a little bit confusing. The, the statement in and of itself is, well, what does that mean exactly? And there's a lot of great descriptions of what that means and how that's understood, but I spent a little time trying to think through that myself, and so let me share what came to my heart uh, as I spent time considering what that means. As I think about the fear of God, I see two inseparable components that must coexist to really understand what it means to fear God. And there are these two things. Number one, we've got to learn to respect His authority. And number two, trust in His goodness. These two have to coexist. They cannot be separated. Respect His authority and trust in His goodness. You see, if we respect His authority without trusting in His goodness, we cower under His rule. (laughs) We kind of are afraid of, of, of failing, waiting for the next lightning bolt to strike us, right? God can be unpredictable, inconsistent, maybe even moody. He's a lot like Pharaoh. His actions have no moral accountability if we don't trust in his goodness. You see, we fear God because, if we're honest, we don't trust him. We don't know what he might do next. But that's not who God is. On the other hand, if we believe in His goodness without respecting His authority, the next thing you know, we'll be taking advantage of His grace. Instead of a domineering God who kind of keeps His thumb on you, He's a hands-off God who kind of turns and looks the other way. His lack of involvement gives you permission to do whatever you want to do. It's okay. God understands. He'll forgive you. Without respecting of His authority, we become the ultimate authority of our life. See, but the fear of God, from a biblical perspective, must have these two qualities, and they must be inseparable. We respect His authority because we believe that His goodness is found within the boundary of His design. We respect His authority because we believe that His goodness is built within the boundaries of His design. We understand that, yes, He gave us commands, but those are not intended to restrict us and rob us, but to lead us to places of goodness and things that He has in store for us. We believe that He can be trusted, that He's consistent, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the end, those who fear God trust Him 
more than they trust themselves. Don't miss that. (laughs) Because in our world today, we find just the opposite. We create and define who God is based on our own understanding because we trust ourselves more than we trust Him. So those who fear God from a biblical perspective trust in Him more than they trust in themselves. Now, I don't know what God might be doing to be getting your attention. I've shared with you some of the things that God has been speaking to my heart. I appreciate you letting me open my heart to do that. We've looked at a passage where clearly God is at work in the lives of the Israelites and He's given them a wake-up call. So my question to you is, what is your wake-up call? What is it that God might be speaking to your heart? Maybe you've chosen to go your own way. Maybe you take His grace for granted. If any of that's true, then today is a great day for something new. And it all begins with this heart that is surrendered to Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking just about a moment of salvation where you truly give your life to Christ. I'm talking about a daily dependence where moment by moment you recognize that He is ultimately in control and He can be trusted because He's good. And so all the plans that we make and all the things that we prepare to do, that's good. But as long as we relinquish control, let go of the basket and put our trust in God alone. We want to long for His Word because we know that that's the path that guides us in His goodness. We want to long for His people to be with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ because that's where we find encouragement and help. And we all need it. See, the person who is spiritually mature is not someone who has the strength to stand on their own because they've got it all figured out. That's the most spiritually immature person I could possibly imagine. The one who is spiritually mature is the one who knows and understands deeply how desperately they need a Savior. And so they spend time trusting in Him, following His Word, and walking with His people. Moment by moment, day by day. You may remember in 1 Corinthians when we did that study about a year ago. We were in 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 2, verse 2, and Paul says, I have determined to know nothing among you but what? Christ and Him crucified. What he's saying is, my whole being depends upon that relationship. And apart from Him, I can do nothing. That's what spiritual maturity looks like. And so let me encourage you to find yourself in that place. And like I (laughs) experienced there on that mountaintop, be in awe of who He is and be lavished with His goodness because of His grace and love and forgiveness. There is no better place. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful again for the privilege of sharing this morning what you've taught me this week. As I've spent time in your word, which is life, which is hope, which guides us and directs us because I, like everybody else here, can do nothing apart from you. I live daily and moment by moment in dependence of you. 
And I'm grateful that your promise is that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us, that your grace has been lavished upon us, and that we can live our lives, even this side of heaven, experiencing a part of the fullness that is yet to await us. So I pray that we as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, might encourage each other to live in that place where we might make plans or have a picture of what we hope life to be, but eventually when it's all said and done, we relinquish control. We let go of the basket and we put our trust in you because we respect your authority and we trust in your goodness. And there's no better place to be. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great day. It's good.